understanding, the ability to discern and hear the truth of your holy word. Father, show us again today the one who came, who was greater than John. Father, as he prepares the way, open our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, roughly 18 years have passed since the closing of chapter 2 that we were in at the last, last week where we saw Jesus when he was 12. Now, both Jesus and John, six months apart, are roughly 30 years of age. 18 years have gone by. And yet Luke, from the outset of his book, told us that it was his purpose and his intention to deliver an orderly account of the things concerning Jesus. And of course, he would do that also in his second book, the book of Acts as well. An orderly account in the ministry and life of Jesus and then the continuing of the work and ministry of Jesus once he had ascended. Today, we determine where we are in time with designations like 2022. We are right now, where are we? We're in the year 2022. And that's how we describe things. That's how we say, where's our place in history? Well, that wasn't true back in the days of Jesus and John. Back then, people determined time by primarily who was in power or in control. Who were the real serious players of the age? And Luke makes his list of the prominent and the famous in a descending order of power. He starts with a Roman Caesar, Tiberius, wicked, evil man. Powerful man, though. He starts with him, and he goes down the line. He goes down the line with Tiberius, and then with his puppet henchman, Pontius Pilate. And then to the wicked, corrupt Herodians. The big guy was dead, Herod the Great. But as you saw last week, he had three wicked sons. And one of those, Herod Antipas, had violated God's commandment in all kinds of ways. And had basically piled on wickedness on top of wickedness. And then the church got in the business as well. The corrupt church led by many those that were in bed with the Romans and with the Herodians played both sides. 
the players like Annas and Caiaphas, his son-in-law. And then, after all of that descending order from the big guys all the way down to the really snakes and charlatans like Annas and Caiaphas, after doing that itemization of these seven power brokers and political players, the world movers, Luke is saying to us by the way he lays this out, those world players, they are nothing but just stops. They are just signposts pointing to something far more significant. These, quote, world movers are only bit players for the real deal to come. And, of course, that real deal to come is not even John, the baptizer that we're talking about today. It's the one who will come after him. And we saw how John spoke of him today. Today's outline for the baptizer goes like this. His sudden arrival, meaning John, John the son of Zechariah, who would be known as John the baptizer by many. First of all, his sudden arrival. Secondly, his spectacular appeal to the people, to the common people, and his subsequent arrest, his final and subsequent arrest. Now, the sudden arrival shows up after this list that I went through of all these other players in descending order. In verse 2b, we finally get to the main clause. All that other stuff that Luke was writing and giving us, letting us know where things were, what was happening, who the players were. But he hasn't told us what's the big deal. What's the significant event that's going to be earth-shadowing and life-changing, world-changing even. That comes in verse 2b. Listen. During the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, comma, that's 2a, this is 2b, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Do you know how long it had been that the word of God had come to God's people? Almost 500 years. Almost 500 years of silence. No word from the Lord. For it's so long before there had been prophets that God had sent to warn his people to try to turn them back. And yet in their stubbornness and their recalcitrance and in their evil, they persisted and God gave them up. For almost 500 years, there had been no word from the Lord. No prophetic thundering. 
of the doings of the Almighty. But now, suddenly, out of nowhere, came the Word of God tumbling down on this guy named John, the son of Zechariah. That's the earth-shaking event because he's just the instrument to point to the one who would really literally shake the heavens and the earth that Hebrews talks about. It's the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that we'll be seeing, beginning to see him more specifically next week. You see, Aslan is fast at last on the move. Now, if you don't know, if you don't know C.S. Lewis, you might be saying, what are you talking about? Talk about Aslan, the Christ figure in Lewis's story of the Chronicles of Narnia. When Aslan is on the move, it's a way of saying when, when Christ, when Jesus begins to shake things up and begins to advance his cause and his kingdom. And that's what was happening after all these years now, at last, through this instrument that would prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. And so this had been foretold years ago. God had told his people that he would send a very, very special messenger to prepare the way and announce the coming of the Messiah. He told them to look for, he said, one day I'm going to speak again. And when I do, you look for the coming of Elijah. Now, not literally Elijah being reincarnated or something. Not anything like that at all. But in other words, one that's going to be so a lot like Isaiah, have a lot of the same characteristics, have a lot of the same passion, a lot of the same things that the people of God need, the truth of God. He told them to look for one like Elijah, and John the baptizer, as he was called, dressed like Elijah. He went into the desert like Elijah did and lived there, and he preached a message that was as fiery and hot as Elijah did. Elijah uh, was, was somebody you didn't want to mess with if you were on the, on the uh, uh, Mount Carmel, remember? Uh, but John was like that. One word summarized what John was doing what he had come to, and what the people of his day needed. Repent. Repent. The message was the same for everyone. There were no exceptions and carve-outs. Like, okay, some of you, you get over here, and y'all are going to be, and I'm, I'm going to give you a, a specific message. Now, these folks over here, they've been better, and they're going to get them. No, no. For everyone. For the least to the greatest. Or we might put it this way. Rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief, doctor, lawyer, Indian chief. It, no matter who you are, anybody. If you want 
to find salvation, you got to start with repentance. You got to start with repentance. Now, all of this had long ago been foretold. So you hear those passages from Isaiah uh, 43 and Malachi 1 that were part of that in those first uh, verses, uh, uh, verses 3. The voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make paths straight, make his path uh, straight. Path. I make his path straight. Uh, every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places, uh, etc. And all shall see the salvation of God. If you want, he's saying, if you want to find the salvation of God, you've got to start with repentance. There's no going around on the outside. There's no doing a some over somehow jumping over the bar. No, you've got to go starting at this point. Now, does repentance mean or, or does it accomplish salvation? No, not at all. It prepares the way for it, just like John prepared the way for the one who would be the Lamb of God. But repentance clears the deck, clears the flight path so that the important one who can bring salvation can come. You see, valleys were to be filled, crooked paths were to be straightened, rough places were to be smoothed, and great mountains of pride were to be crushed down. All of that language upheaval of of things getting pushed up and things getting pressed down, that's cataclysmic language. It's saying when this comes, what it means to repent, and when he comes, it is going to take a shakeup that the world has never seen before. It's going to turn around. Everything that you thought was up, it's going to be down. And everything that you thought was down is going to be up. It's going to be completely different. All of these, there's going to be this tremendous change when the Messiah comes. But notice, as I said, it was the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. See, again, Repentance does not bring remission of sins. It prepares the way. It points the way to the one that can remit sins. And that is God alone. It is God's salvation that is coming. It is God that is coming in his son. Listen to how uh, Paul Benware says, uh, this he said John's baptism could not forgive or remove sins since the scriptures clearly teach that the removal of sin is based on blood not water water can't wash away we're going to sing later on what can wash away my sin it's not water it's the blood of Jesus Scriptures clearly teach that the removal of sin is based on blood, not water. The removal of sin begins with repentance, 
And baptism is the outward declaration that the person has a new spiritual identity. It's a picture of I've been going the wrong way, doing the wrong things. I now know that. I turn around and I start moving 180 in the other direction toward the one who is able to remit my sins. And of course, that points to the Messiah. John knew that all he could do was prepare and point the way. He couldn't bring salvation. He couldn't deliver it. Only Jesus could. Now, he goes on in verses 7 through 18 in the what we called, could call the, his spectacular appeal. Like Elijah, John hated political correctness. <laughs> yeah. Some of us don't like that in our day. Well, John didn't, and he sure didn't worry about it. You would think many times, John, you're like, John, boy, <laughs> Can't you, you're not going to make it, you know, you need to go read some more Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People books, because this is just not, you just, you're just stirring up a lot of people, and particularly important people, high places people. Now, the common people, just like when Jesus would come, they loved him. You know why? Because they knew they were a mess. They knew they were problem, had serious problems spiritually with God. They knew that they and their people were in a terrible place. And they needed the salvation of God. <coughs> but there were other people in high places that didn't believe that at all. And they absolutely despised this, this wild man in the wilderness and all of his things that he was saying that were messing up their following. You see, John broke most of the ministry rules of his day, but the people flocked to him. They loved him. Now, John said, in view of God's coming wrath, he said, look, there is wrath First thing he said is, hey, you brood of vipers. How'd you like to, how, how'd you like to start that as your first point in a, in a sermon? All right, listen up, all you brood of vipers. Now, yeah, you know, jo- that's how John started. But I guarantee you it got their attention. And when he said that, he said, who, who, who warned you of the wrath to come? He's saying, you guys are toast and you don't even know it, but, but somebody obviously told you. You're beginning to listen out now. Of course, he was saying that. But they were, he was saying, how, how, how did you, because really he was primarily speaking again to the religious leaders of his day. Along with that, he said, you must not do something else. He said, I told you that you need to repent. But he said, I want you to understand there's something else that goes along with that. But it's not what you think. It's not what you think. He said, along with that, here's what you must do. And that is really something you must not do. <laughs> so here's what you should do. 
whatever you do, don't do this. Don't begin to say within yourselves, we are Abraham's father. Our, our, our Abraham is our father. He said, the whatever you do, you religious leaders, don't come to me and tell me that you're children of Abraham. Don't come showing me all your paraphernalia and your uh, things that prove what a great guy you really are. He says, don't tell me about all these other things that you've been circumcised. He said, you need to think not about what you've accomplished or what you have. You need to see yourself as poor and lost and without mercy. You have to look to God for that mercy. You can't look to yourself. They were looking, saying, we're good. We're all good. Don't worry about us, John. You, you, you just go on. We're fine. He said, whatever you do, don't lean into the things that you've been counting on. You see, John baptized with water, and it was a seal of repentance that required he required of his contents, of his of his converts. But the important thing here is to realize that John gave applicable illustrations about what it meant to repent. He said, in this case, okay. If, for instance, he said, if you are in, say, the military or you're a tax collector, he said, then, you know, honesty is the point. Honesty. If you are a soldier, gentleness. He said, do things that are appropriate to repentance. So what does repentance look like? It, it, it's something that ultimately is unselfish. Every one of those things, if you read through that again, every one of those things are put yourself down and put someone else in your place. Consider someone else's interest, Paul would later say, more important than your own. He is saying that's the fruit, good fruit that comes from true, real repentance. Not just saying, I'm sorry, or I'll try not to do it again. He's going much deeper than that. This is not where I've, I've just created a little temporary problem. No, he's saying you've got, you've got to ultimately have a turn of heart away from your own doings to God's doings, to trusting in what God has done and the one that is coming to deliver you. You've got, and I'm here to tell you what that looks like and how to make that turn toward him. Now, there was more to that in mere water baptism. That's all well and good, and that's part of uh, how repentance is, shows itself. But he said, ultimately, water baptism is not going to help you. John knew that. Remember, it's blood that we need for salvation, not water. But the water... The water was John's instrument to point the way. But the one who was coming, referring to Jesus, 
He said, when that one comes, he'll baptize you, not with water, but with fire. In other words, it's going to be a completely cleaning of the house. And everything that you thought was the way, he's going to bring the true salvation of God when he comes. And once he was there to announce the coming of the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, verses in verse 16. Now, between John and Jesus, we need to really understand this. A lot of times people think, well, you, know, you had John, they were cousins, and there they are together. Um, and, you know, John was almost, and, and a lot of people, you saw it in the text, a lot of people were beginning to think, man, this guy's so amazing. Maybe he's the Messiah. But there's no way that could have been true. They were clearly confused because it was clear who Messiah would be. And John didn't have the credentials for the Messiah. But people were, were so hungry and wanting the truth. The common people. But John and Jesus, like I said, there's a great gulf between them. John was a voice. Jesus was the word. John had come in the spirit and power of Elijah, but Jesus had come in the spirit and the power of Yahweh, his God. John's baptism is related to repentance. Listen carefully. Jesus' baptism is related to regeneration. John 3, 3 through 7. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Uh, see that unfolding next week and, and beyond. So, John's baptism was related to repentance, but Jesus was bringing a baptism that changed lives, brought regeneration, brought new spiritual life to those who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's what Jesus would bring. That's the difference between the one who is the forerunner and the one who is the son of the living God. Now, as for John's mission, it's basically twofold. I mean, you, you, you could pull some other things out and say, well, that was part of his, you know, probably part of his mission. But a, a simple way to look at it is this. As for his mission, it was twofold. Phase one of John's mission, prepare the way. That's what we've read, verses 3 through 14. Prepare the way. So John's life was all about making the hard stance, bringing the truth to bear, and dealing with the consequences, whatever they might be. So, first of all, he was to prepare the way. And then phase two, he was to get out of the way. He was to get out of the way. Verses 15 through 20. When they started saying, hey, hey, maybe this guy John is the real, maybe he's the Messiah. John said, no, are you crazy? No way. I'm just the messenger. I'm just the one telling you where the bread of life is. I'm the one that is just here to bring him into focus. You remember later it would be said, 
His de decrease meant Jesus' increase. He knew that his direction was this, so that Jesus' direction would be this. That eventually all those people that clamored, they would turn away from him and turn to Jesus. And that's what his mission was. Twofold. Repair the way and then get out of the way. You know, there's a lot of truth to that for, for us practically in our lives. There are times when we need to prepare the way. We need to work hard to get something done. There's sometimes there's this time to say, okay, time for somebody else. That, that will come eventually for all of us. But how do we deal with it? Do we have the, will we have the grace and the understanding that John had as he decreased so that Jesus and, and, in, and in one sense we all have that chance every time when we want to seek the glory for ourselves and that's really hard when you've got a position of where you're standing up before other people <laughs> you know I would love for you guys all to believe a lot of things about me <laughs> that aren't true I would, I would love for you to think uh, just wonderful things about me. But truth is, uh, there's a lot of things that aren't wonderful about me. Um, but do we nonetheless recognize every one of us, we are going to have the opportunity to decrease so that someone else. It can be as simple as giving something over and say, look, you know, I've been working on this, but you, I think you would really do a good job of this. All kinds of ways in which we can decrease so that others can increase. That's just a, that's just a, a side application. It's not the main point of what I'm saying. But there is a lot of truth in that in the body of Christ, and there should be. Now, finally, in verses 19 through 20, his subsequent arrest. Sooner or later, you knew it. John was going to mess with the wrong people. He was going to want, one day step on the wrong snake, and he did. And it was Herod Antipas, who had, it's, it's unbelievable, legendary lore of, of how wicked Herod's sons were. Uh, I mean, he was terrible, but they were, they were just as bad, in some cases, worse. And he had already denounced the wickedness of religious rulers and made a lot of enemies. But now he incurred the wrath of Herod Antipas, which again, that was in Galilee territory. And way down in the south part, in the southeastern part of that territory, there was a dungeon, dank and dark, and just one of the worst places you could be thrown into jail-wise. And that's what happened. He was thrown into prison because he incurred the wrath of Herod Antipas and denounced Herod for stealing his brother's wife. And it was, it was a lot more sordid than that. But Herod added one more transgression to the, his many. He decided, I'm going to throw him in jail. And, my, and I think possibly, probably for a while, he probably thought, well, you know, the, the people really like him. I'll just let him put him on the cooler for a while. But no, no, Herodias is... New wife, going to have no part of that. And so basically in time, not imminently or right away, but in time, 
we see that he was beheaded. Now, while the pontiffs and potentates of his day jailed the baptizer and eventually executed him, Jesus called him something very interesting. In Matthew 11, this is Matthew now, not, not Luke, but this is Matthew 11, 11. He called him in Matthew eleven eleven. He said, truly, this is Jesus speaking, I say to you, among those born of women, in other words, that's everybody. <laughs> that's, that's leaving no exceptions out. Contrary to what people might try to tell you today, um, those among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. None greater. This rough, crude, sometimes rude guy was the greatest person on earth to, to that point in time in the entire history of the world he was the greatest not Caesar not Alexander but here's what's really mind blowing Jesus went on to say something else in that verse that's not the end of the verse he said yet one the one who is least, least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What? You mean the great John the baptizer? Somebody that's the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him? How can that be? How is that possible? Let's see if we can get a little help from Leon Morris. Okay? Follow me. This is really good. But if it's surprising that John was the greatest man who ever lived, it's even more surprising that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus is not denigrating John but bringing out the wonder of what it's like to be in the kingdom of God. Great though he was, John the Baptist belonged to the old order that was passing away. Read Hebrews. He proclaimed the need for repentance in view of the coming of the Messiah, but his function was preliminarily to the Christian era. He was not in that era. John belonged to the old covenant and therefore was in some sense of lesser statue or stature than those who are in it, meaning the new kingdom that Christ is bringing. John is classed among those who precede the kingdom. Jesus is speaking of unimportant people who are in the kingdom of heaven, 
And it is a measure of the greatness of the privilege of being in the kingdom that he proclaimed. He's saying one person that's in the kingdom of God that knows the salvation that Jesus brings, that person is far greater in privilege than anybody that's ever come before. The humblest member surpasses the greatest of the former age. This cannot mean in character or achievement. He said this has nothing to do with what you, your, your character or, your, your, or any kind of achievement. It refers to your privileged position in Christ. That's what he's saying. How much more advantageous is it for those who are in Christ? And that's who's coming on the scene here in Luke. We learn later that the humility of a little child gives us a clue of real greatness. Listen to this in verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he, meaning John, preached the good news to the people. With many exhortations, he preached, proclaimed, told the good news to the people of God. Should we not be doing the same? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for John, for his witness. Father, he could not even comprehend what you had prepared for those sons and daughters in your kingdom that Christ would bring. Father, help us today once again remember it's not by water that we are saved, but by the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. And